Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. My guest this week is the poet, playwright and Mercury Prize nominated, double Mercury Prize nominated rapper Kate Tempest. She's got a new book of poetry out in September called Running Upon the Wires. And as someone who's always struck me as being at the, I mean, the absolute extremities of self-expression, I'm genuinely nervous about interviewing her because I think, well, in short, I think she hates being interviewed. You don't like being interviewed, I've sensed in the past. It's not that I don't like it when it's something interesting. I'll tell you what it is. I feel like when I can have a serious discussion, I really, really enjoy it. And in fact, I relish the opportunity to talk about the things that I'm passionate about. But occasionally, or in fact frequently, I feel like I'm either kind of condescended to or patronised or sensationalised and it just gets a bit eggy, you know, it's like... I do, I understand. Also, people talk to artists in this really funny way sometimes where they, when they interview you as if you've kind of fallen from heaven and, like, you've got all these interesting things to say about things you're not really qualified to be pontificating on. And instead of, like, having an interesting kind of meaty discussion about the stuff that you've developed expertise in or areas that you're really focused on, you're kind of pedestalised. Yes. And there's the, that isn't an enjoyable place to have a chat. That's fame, isn't it? Is it because you are famous, you must be possessed of some quality that the rest of ordinary mortals don't? I mean, it's, it's bollocks, obviously, but yeah. it's, it's, where, it's where perhaps the idea comes from. I don't know if it's fame. I just think it's a kind of strange convention in how we've kind of learned 
to talk to artists. It's a misunderstanding of the craft. Well, you've got me on my uh, on tiptoes now. Then you got. <laughs> I feel quite relaxed today. So good. Well, right, I mean, right. good. You should. But I'm going to be editing my questions. I suspect as as I ask them. I thought it would also perhaps be to do with the importance of the right words that that in your work. I mean, poetry. Nothing is extraneous, is it? Everything is pared down to the absolute meaning. Whereas in normal conversation, particularly perhaps with a uh, I don't know, slightly eggy journalist, <laughs> journalist doing the interview, you can end up almost being misinterpreted or having your words uh, um, afforded a significance or a meaning that you didn't intend, I think. I, just, I always end up saying too much because I get, I get <laughs> nervous. Like, I'm just one of those kind of people that you try and kind of put the other person at ease, like yeah. quite naturally, like, and um, then I end up like talking too much and like revealing too much about myself and then I just feel like it's not a very pleasant feeling when you kind of realise... The next day, you're like, why did I tell that stranger who doesn't care anything about me? All those yeah. things about how I feel. But maybe they're good at their job. Probably very good at their job. <laughs> and I just need to get better at mine. <laughs> well, that's the point, isn't point. it? You don't see this as part of the job. And also, you put so much into your work that, in a sense, you, you could be forgiven for thinking that there's nothing left to reveal in interviews or there's nothing left to do in interviews. Let's begin at the beginning. Um, born in Broccoli, 1985, one of five children. Um, your mum was a teacher. Uh, your dad moved from the construction industry into into law. Do you remember that happening? Was it a sort of conscious journey? Well, my dad did loads of things. He wrote poems and he was he wrote plays and things like that. I don't think he ever put one on, but he used to muck around doing all those kinds of creative, bits. Creative it was house. really creative. My mum did bits of teaching at, in Lewisham College. We, were, we lived in Lewisham. I moved to Brockley later. She then stayed at home and was a housewife and I stayed at home, Mum. That was probably when I was about 10, so I remember that. I remember when my dad was doing his, the exams, the the law yeah. exams, I remember where he used to work in the house. I was like small enough to be, I must have been crawling around. <laughs> Happy times. Uh, yeah. Well, well, why is that funny? Because I mean, I'm interested in your childhood. I feel like a bit... Go on. I feel like when you talk about your childhood, yeah. like, I'm actually not the best person to talk about my life as I recall it. Because to be frank with you, I think like memory, my memory is actually not very good. Fair enough. And like, there's lots of reasons for that, but. <laughs> Do you remember finding a voice? Oh, this is the thing as well that people ask all the time. Like that. When the, the kind of epiphany moment. When... No, no, just, just when you first started expressing yourself creatively. Because not uh... every kid does. I mean, I'm talking more than Crayola. Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember always really enjoying reading. Uh, like a hell of a lot and I always used to feel very creative about the reading I was doing and the the music I was listening to. So when did you start writing? Really young I think but not with the idea that that was anything unusual or no it was more that I loved writing stories. And at home it wouldn't be unusual because your dad was doing it your mum when she was teaching with stories would be the currency at home a, a big currency other homes wouldn't have that so you wouldn't feel that you were doing anything special or particularly interesting yeah my dad used to make up lots of stories to us when we were young and also my grandmother she she had loads of nursery rhymes and things like that she used to be a nursery teacher and she knew loads of very long kind of morality you know those old school like victorian yes really long rhymes about like a kid so going to Belloc and that, those, that kind of stuff or even before that i don't know who that like they were just it was just my grandma i don't know Always had a moral message. Yeah, they're quite dark. They are quite dark. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the best children's stuff is really dark. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the best children's writers understand the, the darkness. But um, 
This is going to be a tough interview, Kate, I can tell. But that's that's what? my lookout. Why? Well, I, I, I don't know. You don't seem to enjoy talking about yourself very much. And we're here for an hour. So oh, we'll, no, we'll, we'll, no. We'll, we'll get on to the work imminently. Tell me a bit about school. Oh, yeah, I went to primary school in Deptford. <laughs> it was really great. I went to secondary school in Kibbrook in a place called Thomas Tallis. Were you, were, were you happy at school? Did you have a good time? Um, yeah, I loved it and loved it up to a certain point. And then when I got to secondary school, I, I was not having such a good time and I stopped. Um, Why not? Stopped attending. Well, just lots of reasons. Did you have a good time at school? Uh, I was away at boarding school, so the comparisons oh, are a, a little bit different. And yes and no would be the short answer. Looking back, I probably had a better time than I realised at the time. But, but at the time, like most adolescents, and like you, actually, I found a lot of solace in William Blake, which probably gives you an indication of, of what my inner life was like. But, um, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I can answer that question sort of comfortably and fluently. You, I'm trying to pin down why you, you don't think people are interested in you or you don't think people will be interested in the answers. That, I mean, you're, you're a very successful artist, and it's, it's not abnormal to be interested in, in how that journey began and, and unfolded. I just feel, it just feels like the things that I'm an expert in, yeah. the things that I can talk about. You've got to be an expert in you, you, haven't you? Well, I don't know if anyone ever really is. Like this, that's my life and my childhood, and it's kind of that is that's kind of private, isn't it? Yeah, it's I guess like, so. I hadn't thought of it that way before. But but I find it fascinating. I find people's gestation and development, especially if they're very creative, I'm fascinated by the building blocks in that process. But they are private. You're right. And then, and once you said, once you say, oh, you know, I had a really tough time. This happened, or this was the moment when this happened. Then. Yeah then that becomes the narrative of your life. And I think when you're a writer, you, you, ha- you have to be cautious about just putting yourself in an awkward place where, where you say too much and then suddenly, oh, I just need to relax, everything's fine. It's not tabloid newspaper journalism trying to get somebody in the public eye to say something they regret. I, I also think it's probably tied to something you've said in the past about mm. being, when you were young, not being able to deal with the way that your mind works you've spoken about. Is that the kind of thing you regret saying? Or, or is that the kind of thing that you can <laughs> expand upon? Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of young people, mm. the world can feel like an assault. Yes. Growing up in South East London, where I grew up in Lewisham, there was a lot of quite troubling stuff going on around yes. for friends. And it's the kind of place where things can be quite extreme. So your mental response to an extreme uh, environment is often extreme as well. And I believe that we live in a time of a complete extremity. And often the most sane response to the insanity all around us is is to slip a little bit, you know. But mm. when I was young, I felt very passionate about music and literature, like very passionate. These were the things that I connected with almost like more fully, more forcibly at a particular time of in my development than with the real world, you know, the okay. outside world. Yes. And um, through a very like engaged, passionate pursual of finding out more knowledge and finding out more, like have more access to them. I had this job in this record store and there were these bookshops where you could get all the classics really, really cheap, like 20p for... The Penguin Classics with the black and orange spine. All things like that. And then I made lots of friends in my, when I was about 13 or 14, through through a love of hip hop and rapping. And and then my mind was kind of absolutely blown apart by live music, by what was happening in terms of hip hop events, like DJs that I met, like music. It was live, it was real. We interviewed Dave Haslam recently, and he, he talked about finding his tribe wherever, ah. wherever he goes, yeah. wherever he's found himself in life. He's always somehow been able to find a tribe. It strikes me that's what you've just described. 
I think. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like that, especially mm. when they when they are the kind of person who's, I think, born with the sensitivity of a poet. Like yes. you know, it's it's an it's an extreme way of experiencing life. In Brazil, poet is a praise word. Yes, it's like I would call you poet. It's a term of endearment. Mm. You know, you'd say, "Oh, my poet," when somebody's being particularly sweet-natured, sensitive, That's like lovely. open. You know, yes, of course. And I kind of have the idea about poet. I know people that have been writing poems all their lives, but I wouldn't necessarily call them a poet. And I know people that have never written poetry, but I think of them as poets. So it's, I feel it's more like a kind of frequency that you're tuned into life at. And when you're of that frequency, yes. the minute you connect with others of that frequency, it's it's a big shock. You're of like, course. well, I found somebody else who has this thing in them. And the musicians that I met at that time, I still play with today. Yeah. I wouldn't be here doing this, having this chat with you if it wasn't for the players and people that I met at that time. It's a beautiful thing to have community like that, musical community. For sure. If we, if we had to pin down what that frequency was. I think the creative personality is a strange mix of like absolute conviction and um, a kind of crippling insecurity. Mm. And somewhere amongst all that, there's this very strong current pushing yourself to the limits of experience so that you can really feel fully, you know, whether that's feeling fully empathy or yes. feeling fully other things it's important if your sensitivities are open that way i think keats said um in a letter not in a poem he said something like oh for a life of sensation rather than of thought yeah i could imagine him saying something like that as in a letter you, but that's what i can kind of <laughs> that's what i'm hearing from you it's as if when you talk about fully engaging the insecurity is the thought that's the kind of voices and the the poetry is the feeling is the sensation living yeah. Yeah, and also it's quite Blakey in that as well, isn't yes. it? But, I mean, you can't have all sensation and no thought because you end up... Well, you'd be ahead in this. ...not making much yeah. sense. And also, you never get anything written down. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I'm not looking for a big epiphany moment, or I'm just looking for some chronology. Okay. When did you start rapping about 15 and 16? You've described it quite beautifully as an ecstatic liberation from an anxious adolescence. But you were writing before you started performing. Yeah. presumably what yeah, were you writing and, and and what did you get out of the process everything and i was writing terrible poems like just for yourself mostly yeah, was it yeah and stories and I was, I was seriously writing from about seven or eight like seriously that was my thing yeah. but then i stopped realizing that what i was doing was writing okay it wasn't something that i was kind of actively trying to do it was just a part of how i needed to make sense of the world around me or my own place yes. within it or whatever it was. Things that were happening. I I like to write down just happenings on the street or in a cafe or just at the bus stop. I would quite like to often just sit there and describe it, stand on the street and just describe it as it was going on, just to try and get better at pinning the words on the yes. on the action. I still love to do that. Getting the right words. Well, you never can. It's an amazing thing happened yesterday. I got an honorary PhD from well London Met. Do I have to call you doctor? You don't have to, Doctor, but I mean, you, you could if you wanted know, to. Technically, <laughs> fantastic. But the, what was amazing about it was that I sat, you, you sit on the stage with the faculty and mm. um, then all of the students collecting their degrees come up to shake hands with the Vice-Chancellor of the University. So I got to just sit there on this chair and watch 250 people like on a really important day in their lives just come up, kind of beaming, like yeah. all their families are in the audience. And I got to just look at all these faces like, in a, like unashamedly. Like it was... It was 
expected that we would be looking at these yes. like beautiful faces, everyone. You're just looking, thinking like how there's no way, no matter how skilled you become with language, there's no way of fully being able to describe how much you learn from a person by observing their face or observing a small movement, some feature. And you can observe and observe and observe, but you can never imagine the movement that gives away the full depth of yeah. uh, of kind of knowing that you feel when you watch somebody suddenly dance across the stage and everyone cheering and then and then they get a bit shy the other side of the stage and I don't know it was are you sure that you can never quite because I mean th- th- that rather leads me to the question of why bother trying then oh because you try and you try and you try <laughs> but you'll never succeed like every time every time you tr- every time you write you fail that's the you, to write to make artwork to make theatre is to fail there is no chance that anything you write will ever be as good as the idea will ever be as pure as experience it's always failure and and meeting that failure and persevering through that failure is 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 what gives you the humility to to become a writer to become an artist to become a theater maker but just knowing that this task is utterly hopeless how do you know you finished then because, I mean, it's, it's, I'm thinking about this, Beckett, who said, fail, fail again, fail better. That's right. That's a ever tried, ever failed. That's it. Try again, fail again. Yeah. Fail better. Fail better. Fail better. That's so, what it is. Yeah, well, it is. And I, and I understand what that means, but I'm not a, a poet, or, or at least not publicly. But <laughs> <laughs> so how do you know, if you know that you failed, how do you know that you finished? Oh, it's a completely different thing. Of course, you know that you finished. Like you, you like. <laughs> could, you, could you be any, any more dismissive of my question? <laughs> I was quite pleased with that one. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm rolling with it. The, I think that when you are creating a piece of work, you are always consulting the idea and trying to interrogate the idea and make sure that you can facilitate it which you can never do successfully, but you try your best to do it. And then you begin by knowing where you want it to go, hopefully, and you end by knowing... That's that's as much that's as, as you far can as I can go. So it's as if you're on a road. You're never going to reach the destination, but you know when your tank is empty. You Who know said when it? Like, it's never finished. It's only abandoned. Don't know. I Some, like it. Somebody, I think, a writer. Also, there's to be completely frank with you. It's, mm. You have deadlines. If you're, if this is true. Finish. Hand it in. <laughs> that sort of focuses the mind a bit, especially if you've already spent the advance. That's usually a very good way, <laughs> a very good way of ensuring that you get the work done. Um, right. So, I, I, I'm thinking self-taught. Is that? Is that? I mean, if you really weren't much into secondary school, and yet your your palette of, of reference culturally is immense. So you were. Would you go with self-taught, or does that sound a bit pompous? Well, I d- like, so I I stopped going into school when I was um, about thirteen or fourteen. I I attended some classes. I I attended a music class with a teacher that I loved. He's passed away now, actually. But I, w- I would go to those classes, and sometimes I would be sometimes in the school. Yes, but in a different room, like just whatever. I wasn't really doing, but I did take the exams. Right at the end of the thing, and uh, then I went on and I did a music BTEC at this college in Croydon called the Brit School, which was like. An insane place to go because it's like a performing art school. So you had music and you had theatre and you had film. You had kids studying like production, so people learning how to rig lighting gear. Hmm. Amazing place, but quite a culture shock to just suddenly be around so many people so committed to their their passions, their yes. talents. That was really unusual. I went with my best mate. Your best mate went to the school as well. Both got in, That's went right. to the audition, did our thing. And um, what was your thing? In my audition, I was playing the guitar. Just playing Spanish guitar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very short time. I mean, it's hard to get into the school. You talk about it quite casually, but it's, it's it was mental. I couldn't believe massively it. Massively oversubscribed, isn't it? 
It was amazing. Well, I was learning guitar there, but I stopped, and, and then I worked. And slowly, I, re- I was giving more and more attention to the work that I was doing with my rapping outside school. And anyway, after all that, did a part-time degree at Goldsmiths mm. in New Cross, and that was incredible because I got access to the library there. So the reason I'm telling you all this stuff about that is because no, I'm not self-taught. Like no. I've been in contact with education uh, my whole life, and also I've been in contact with an incredible community of other people. Yes. So I learned a lot from friends, from friends' mums and dads, like from experience, from my family, from books. Yes. That I just always very passionately would devour about lots of things. And then like when I hit Goldsmiths and I was doing these evening classes with these amazing people, you know, like there were small classes of people like, you know, that had been working all day and had kids and whatever, you know, and we'd come together in the evening and it'd be these quite rowdy discussion-based seminars and I'd never known anything like it. And I got this library card and so I got access to the library and I was reading academic books for the first time. I was doing like an introduction to politics that was really, really inspiring, exciting class. You know, and like having to learn after not having been in academic study. I did study music, but it's not the same thing. You have no, to like... No, of course. So you never, you, you got off the rails of formal education, but you just went exploring yourself through the kind of... Yeah, and it was uncharted, amazing. Not on rails, doing whatever you wanted, pursuing an enthusiasm. I find that interesting, so I'll read that. I'll go to this because I like that. Yeah. As opposed to the sort of classic... Yeah, I got to pursue different pathways yes. into areas that I didn't know anything about. You mm-hmm. know? When did you think about the future? During this period, because you've gone from secondary school to the Brit school to Goldsmiths, you found your tribe, you found your voice. When did you first, if indeed you did, it may have just sort of popped in, start thinking of a career, as it were? Well, what's interesting is that there was never a moment where you think of a career. Right. What happens is you become obsessed to the point of um, it feels there's no room for anything else. So when I discovered rapping, I was 15 when I started doing it myself. Like, I mean, I, my own rapping, I was mm. 15. I started doing it out loud at 16. <laughs> and Where were you doing it before? Just in at home just in your not, own bed? Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to open my mouth and right. speak. And join the... I was, I was hanging out with rappers and they would be rapping and I'd be listening, I'd be enjoying it, but I would, didn't really feel like I was able to, to join the cypher yet. I had to do a bit more work privately. Okay. Yes. And then eventually... At 16, I started to speak what I'd been writing. And then from the, basically from that moment, there was no other colour in the palette. That was it. There was no other. That was all was you no, wanted to was do. Just, it's not even wanted to. There was nothing else. Like that, that is it. That was life. Like it just was, to explain a bit more, if you can, because that is, I think for me, at risk of sounding pretentious, that's the difference between an artist and the rest of us. Perhaps. I, 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 well, like my, my best mate who I just mentioned actually. Yeah. He's a drummer and he had music and I had lyrics and we both felt the same way about our creativity. So the rest of us don't quite get this, do we? But because there was people around me coming with the same kind of commitment and passion to it, I started to realise it was unusual. Okay. But there was, there's a massive community of musicians in South London where I grew up and there was a lot of space for us to meet and play. There was a lot of squats around. There was a lot of space for us to be able to play for free or for like a tenner for like five hours rehearsal. Mm. It was not absurd to spend three days playing music, getting a gig. It was just part of life. And that, and it was very much part of how we socialized, part of how we understood ourselves, part of how we worked. Obviously we had jobs, but the, you know, everyone needs, you know, day job, but the, 
the energy was always always involved in thinking about lyrics writing them rehearsing trying to put a band together trying to get some gigs trying to be heard make a demo make a cd get a cd played in and, the and, and that, so there's no plan there's no route there's no map it was it's it's like a visceral need it's just every, yeah it's like you know it's like 16 like, it's like... And, uh, well yeah but i mean 16 year olds aren't, aren't necessarily that focused on doing something constructive and creative normally but then you would even reject those words you were just doing what you had to do i think that throughout my formative years and mm. up until about the age of 21 i was just throwing myself completely at it and not realizing that i was frustrated that i didn't know how to move beyond a certain point but but you were frustrated of, you of course you, when, when you get to because you want more people to hear the words that you're yeah, at that time I wanted to reach reach more, be, well, that, you know, it, wanted to it? go further. There you go. So that's an ambition, but it's not an ambition in a materialistic sense or, or in a popular sense. You, you just considered the work that you were doing to be important enough to demand <laughs> and deserve a wider audience. At that time, that's exactly how it felt. I think you want to push yourself to a point where where you can be heard, and and it yeah. because it's it's. Um, it's an outward reaching ambition. It's a social ambition you want to connect. It's about connection, I think. Because you want people to be better to each other. <laughs> um, That's why the more people that hear it. I don't bit- know where it comes from. Like maybe, I think maybe it's, it's an, you know, an artist has always has a huge ego. Otherwise, why on earth would you stand up on stage or sit down to write? So you have to you have to separate the true creative ambition from the creative ego, and, right. and ask yourself: Well, was I desperate to be heard because I was serving this higher purpose, which is what I thought I was doing at the time, yeah. or because I wanted to feel more justified in my personhood? Yeah. Because outside of having this identity that set me apart from others, then I could be bullied or laughed at, or you know whatever you know whatever it is at that time. You yeah. know, you're you're an adolescent. You're trying to work out your place in the world and. When I'm looking back and trying to unpick that, I can't say it was a completely noble pursuit of a higher connection. Although I, I mean, it was, but probably <laughs> at the same time, I was just looking to like... So you're conscious of that look at me, Gene, then? The, what you call as the, the ego, the bit of you that wonders, am I just doing this because I like being on a stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people? Well, the thing is about that is that probably everybody who is on stage in front of that many people, I guarantee you, they might be up on that stage looking like they've never been afraid of anything in their lives. Yeah. But 45 minutes before they went up, I guarantee you they're in the dressing room with their head in their hands thinking, who do I think I am? And How why, am I going to do this? Why do I keep doing this to myself yeah. as well? What answers, yeah. do you, what answers do you come up with? Why do I keep doing this to myself? Well, the thing is, it's not about... The, the, as you grow older and you become more secure in your personhood... Yes. And you... I try and understand what it is about performance or creativity that I'm so bound to that yes. you, you understand more and more that it's nothing actually to do with you. The more you get involved in it, the more you get in the way, to be honest. Like, all being well, you're a channel. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to say because when people <laughs> start talking about channeling. But, but what I mean by that is, in performance especially, you're trying to bridge a gap between audience and stage and language and imagination and individual and community like yeah. you you're really trying to bridge that gap and if you can take yourself away from it and just let it let the words let the music come through you and you don't interfere with your nerves with your anxieties with your ego 
we're trying to please, trying to look after. If you just breathe and just let it happen, mm. then you become this bridge. And then there is transcendence in the room. And like, that's, it's insane. It's mad. It's mad when that happens. It's, How often does it happen? Um, it, well, it happens with, with Brand New Ancients, which was a long poem I wrote, yeah. which was the first, it was a 75 minute long poem, a story that had a lot of violence in it, but essentially was a kind of euphoric story. So it was a dark thing to summon, but nice. at the same time, it, it ended with a very euphoric feeling. It was quite a taxing one to do, and I had not done that kind of thing before. And that transcendent moment would happen pretty much every night, but it was too much for me at the time, and I had to stop doing it because I thought that I was not going to be able to cope and it would I would feel very drained. And Once we were in New York, I, it was amazing. We'd got, like, the, the show had transferred to New York. It was in this amazing theatre in Brooklyn, and... There was all these people in the audience and it was quite a steep rake, I think they call it, yeah. or bank of seats like that. So you could really feel the, the audience from all the way up there, all the way down. And we got about 10 minutes in and basically I, I felt like I was going to have a panic attack, like a, my breathing, I was, became really aware of like my skin and everything just started going really weird and I felt like I was, I was like, I'm going to pass out or something. Yeah. And then basically what happened was I kind of... It's good for them. Oh, gosh. So you, I was there back, like, out after the thing, like, I don't even know what happened. Like, where? Were you scared? Yeah, because I, I thought, like, what is that? Is that a panic attack? I don't know what that, I'd never had one of those before, so I didn't know if that was what it was. And then I was talking to my friend who's a musician. He's a guitarist. He talks about guitarists talking about that happening. You yeah. black out and, and you can play like you've never played before. So then, if that's if that's the case, if as musicians and performers we're aspiring to get to this place where essentially we we're so afflicted by the reality of like trying to go out there and do it that the like the, the best thing that can happen to you is that you black out. Yeah. Danger. I felt like there was a dangerous element going on that I wasn't re I wasn't strong enough to to hold. So that I decided that we c I couldn't do that anymore. I wasn't supported enough. I sure. didn't have well, the experience. But people wouldn't know how to support you, would they, really? Because it's such uncharted water for 
almost everybody. Now I've learned that there are ways. Yes. There are ways to make that experience like more positive and safer for the people that are on stage. Because it is scary. Are we talking about the same thing then? It's, it's interesting the words are so different. To black out is to transcend. Well, no, but, no. but when I was talking about the kind of the transcendent moment, yeah. I didn't mean that time. No. But like... But that was transcendent. But that's what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. That was probably... The most. The most, right? <laughs> but for me, it was... Terrifying. It was really dark. Where were you? I was in this theatre in New York. Yeah, but where were you? Oh, I've got no idea. That's what I'm saying, James. <laughs> it was, you, like... Also, it was a mad time for me in my life anyway. Sure. It's a big pressure, like, you know, that show was a big pressure. And I, anyway, now, we've let them eat chaos, which was the last um, yes. album that we did, that was a kind of similar... In a lot of ways, a similar process. It's a long story. With that, it was just completely different because there was so much hope. I think it was the violence in Brand New Ancients that made it such a burden. Right. Because every night you have to summon this violence into the room. It's a sexual violence yes. and it, it was, it's a hard thing to summon into your body and say, okay, that's where we're going to go. And I, you have to be responsible for taking people there. And, um, with the, we've let them eat chaos. It was, um, it's positive. It's just much more positive, you know. The message is more positive, so we were more protected yeah, okay. on stage by what we were saying. So when you go out and you start the story, you feel more secure in where you're taking the people. You're like you feel like you, you're asking them to come with you in this on this journey, and you feel much more secure asking them because you know it's going to end well. <laughs> you know, it's like... So it's exposure and vulnerability, but of two different flavors: one dangerous and one ultimately uplifting. Or redemptive? Is that a word that would fit here? The thing is, like, words spoken in public places are yeah. very powerful things. Of course. Like, in dark rooms. Yeah. You know, like, with lots of people, with drums. Like, this is ancient. This is, yeah. like, powerful yeah, stuff. Yeah, of course it is. And you can't take it lightly. It's and if, primal. There's something that happens, I like, so. to, the, to our bodies on stage, yes. to the bodies in the audience. You can't, like, just because it's... The music industry is a huge machine, and ever since the Beatles, people go on tour, you know, and da-da-da. You can't forget that what you're doing is like, it's, it's really amazing. It's like, it's it's a very special moment that these people have come out, like no matter what's happened in their day, they've they've booked a ticket to this thing. Maybe their friend got them a ticket. They've had to get on the train. They've had to leave whatever's going on. They've probably forgotten they had to do it. Then they've run out the door and <laughs> everyone's got their own journey that they're bringing into this room. And then they all stand together. Everybody's experience is directly affected by the people around them and how yes. they are experiencing and then you come out and you meet all of this massive experience and you start telling a story you can't take it lightly you have to give it the respect it deserves and you know without wanting to sound too far-fetched or too much of a lovey like that is how i feel about it it's like okay performance for me is stagecraft is extremely important because it's very heightened it's yes. like it's access to to community, direct access, yeah. you know. So now I feel much more secure in my stagecraft. Maybe I could tackle something like Brand New Ancients again, but I don't think I would want to. But moving on, yeah. I feel more and more excited by the possibility of what, like a gathering of people to hear poems, to hear... They're like, it's, it's like spells, you know. It's like, it's, you know, sermons and all this stuff. The reason it's so powerful, that mm. religious language... Because like you're standing listening to somebody speak, tell these stories. I don't like fancy myself as a preacher, but something happens that's a bit unusual when there's poems and music. And and an audience. Yeah, but even if it's Does just it one when other person. No audience? I'd never really tried it. You know, you don't get in the same place. Do you, you not? So when you're writing and, and, and composing, 
it, it, it's never actually finished until you've done it in front of people. It's definitely not the same as when... That's interesting. Because when you're writing, it's one thing, you're the writer. Yes. When you're composing, it's one thing, you're composing. When, you're, when you become the performer of the text, you, in a lot of ways, you have to forget that you're the writer of it. You have to, you have to memorise it, that's one thing, mm. put it in your body and let it come through you. It's a completely different experience. And it's all about communication. When you're writing, you're in service to the idea. When you're on stage, you're in service to communication. You're trying to be this bridge. It's completely different experiences. Like the, the written text is one thing, finished when it's performed, but this new book of poems that I've written, I won't perform. More from Kate imminently, but here's Russell Kane to tell you about his new show on Joe. Hi, Russell Kane here, and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe. Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, why do girls only fancy bastards? All the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I'll also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Cheers, Russell. Now, back to Kate Tempest. It's not right to tour these poems. I think that they will perform better... Other people more might. intimately with, with somebody reading them, I think. Really? Yeah. Why? Because of the nature of the poems and the brevity of them and the importance of the page yeah. and the space around them and and uh, also the, the time it takes to read. I think they should be read slower and I I have a tendency to kind of try and meet the space and go too loud and oh, too okay. fast. Right. So it's a more contemplative I think so, yeah. project? I still think people should read poems aloud even if they're reading them to themselves. I do. Yeah, I think probably we'd all benefit from having a little bit more poetry in our life. But when I say that, I sound glib. <laughs> do you see? Don't I? That's why you're laughing at me. No, I do. I sound a bit glib. And yet when you say it, I don't know whether it's because you've clearly, you suffer for your art. There's a torturous air sometimes to the way you analyse the process. I wonder if you ever wish you didn't have that. I mean, you wouldn't be Kate Tempest. You wouldn't be the winner of a Ted Hughes prize and a, a, a double Mercury music. But there's a pain involved in what you're describing to me that I wonder whether sometimes you wish you were made slightly differently. What I can say to that is that this dream that I had when I was a kid, yeah. this, this compulsion that took over my life, has become something that I am able to do for a career. And that is unbelievable. I'm so grateful. I feel so privileged, so blessed... I've had so much support from so many different places. Every single time I have a creative conversation with another another practitioner, mm. I feel so full of gratitude that this can be my life. This is this is unbelievable. It's 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 extremely powerful to think back to the kids that we were yeah. telling each other not if but when. <laughs> not if but when. Come on, we just got to like we're going to do this like this is going to happen for us because it's for the greater good and da 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 da. Like, oh, I remember all these things. And like, when I put that, it, when I stand on the line that goes back to the beginning yes. and I position myself on that line, I can't believe how beautiful, how, what a beautiful thing to be able to live a creative life. And most people who said not if but when in their teens didn't get to lead the life that you do. Well, I think that like one thing that is sad is that you can be brutalized by the experience of being alive there is a lot that happens to a person that can make them lose some of their openness and like creative careers aside sure that is the sad element and that happens too often and because of so many things but no matter what happens in life and i know this from experience 
you can retain your integrity and you can retain your openness. And it's that's, not easy. that's, <laughs> what do we mean by integrity, Kate? Well, your, your service to your ideas. You yes, know? I do. So you spend a, a lot of time thinking about process, a lot of time thinking about personhood, a lot of time defining the parameters of your professional and personal existence. And they're, they're blurred, right? You don't separate the two. Well, actually, increasingly, I do. But you think you have to flick a switch and... Well, just like when I'm having, like, my life yeah. now, you know, it's Kate Calvert who hangs out with her partner or hangs yeah. out with her sisters or a brother or mum and dad. And that, like, luckily that... That isn't the same person that has to go out on stage and do all the okay. bits that that person has to do. But they're both real people. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, they're both real people. Because well, I've interviewed a lot of artists uh, for a, a very long time. And it, it, it's fascinating to, to speak to somebody who is so comfortable talking about the, the stuff that the rest of us don't really experience, you know? The, 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 well, you do experience it. We experience the end result of it. And occasionally I understand most of what you're saying about transcending and most of what you're saying about creative urges. But I guess, I guess the difference between every adolescent that's ever written a poem and what you're describing to me is need. It's necessity. What would happen to you if you somehow were prevented from writing? Uh, um, I don't know. I mean, like... I <laughs> it's oxygen. The, the thing about... Transcendent. It's, just, it's a funny word to use because it's got so many connotations. But do you know, it's the word I had in my head before you said it, and I was trying to pluck up the courage to go. say it out loud to you, and but I didn't I mean, need to. Maybe a better way of describing it for the, for your listeners, yes. so it doesn't sound like such a load of kind it of doesn't, it doesn't, jargon. It doesn't, or, I don't think it does sound like jargon. Like, you know, it sounds a bit far-fetched. So but, we've all got a concept of being taken out of ourselves by art. I'm just not familiar with speaking to the artist about it. As a consumer of art, I can mention the moments in my life where I've almost been floating above yeah, the this room. Is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, this but is as it. A, that would be as an audience member rather than as a performer. The best way to describe it is, is just is music. Yeah. How music feels. To, like, that's it. That's where you go when you make music. So you go to the same place that music takes you. It's, um, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I can't, like, it's so beautiful. And then sometimes it really isn't. Sometimes it's like, an absolute nightmare and you can't get there and it doesn't make any sense. And you, you're just like throwing yourself against these brick walls, you know? But you have to do that to have the successful moments. I think presumably. so. Like, the minute, like, I'm working on a novel and I'm finding it really hard. And, uh. Is that, I mean, when you, what do you mean when you say you're finding it really hard? Are you struggling to sit down and write? No, no, it's not that. It's, I didn't uh, think it would be. It's, um. You're struggling it's to like just, the stuff you've done. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, really? Like, How far into it are you? About two-thirds in okay. to the first draft. And I'm having a bit of a crisis. But, I mean, I, the thing is, this is what I know in my sober mind, is that I have these... And this is maybe it's quite useful for people to know. Sure. Every single time I make anything new, yes. I have a complete kind of artistic rejection of the idea of myself. Like, you know, you battle with this inferiority complex and you can't do it. Every single time I'm about to do anything, whether it's a gig or an interview or whatever it is, there's a part of me that is sure that I cannot do it, it will not be done, it is no good. And then the, th the, the flip side of it is this conviction, this like mad conviction that's like basically this kind of seesaw of yeah. like... I can't do it. What am I doing to like, there is nothing else for me to do. I must be able to do this. I'm going to be, I'm going to get it done. And, and it, sometimes it's happening at the same time of like, you know, you're having this awful day at the desk and everything you've written is a nightmare. And at the same time, 
you know you're making progress and you know that it's going to pass because it's happened every single other time before <laughs> and all those times you made the work. All those times you got on stage and you did the gig, even though you you knew that you weren't going to be able to do it, but the rational mind, you, you know intellectually that it's going to be fine, but yeah. what you experience in your body emotionally is like, you know, like just crippling. Uh, Doubt. Yeah. So it's not the same as imposter syndrome. It's not that you feel you're a fake and you're going to be found out. You never, <laughs> you never feel like that. But like you may be found out by the idea that yeah. you don't have what it takes on this to, occasion to do, it to do this job, to do this piece. It's so mad. But then it I think people must have me. that with work, you know, yeah. with, with any with any vocation. Yeah, but that's why I was, that's why I mentioned imposter syndrome or, or, or feeling because that's not what I'm hearing from you. And almost every other guest we've had on Unfiltered at some point has alluded to a sense of fear that you're going to get a tap on the shoulder and told, "All right, you've had your fun." Go and get a normal job now. Go and get a job in a shop or an yeah, office. Yeah, or, I feel, or, I yeah, I feel that. Like, you I get that, that as well. Everybody has that. But the way that you create is so profound that you must. It, it, it's not quite. How have I ended up getting away with this? That's not what we're describing. <laughs> no, no, no. It's I, sometimes it's that. Sometimes <laughs> yesterday on the stage, you're getting my PhD from yeah. this, these amazing people. I was like, this is bonkers. Like you do have that moment, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit more like, how deeper. on earth am I going to get away with this yeah. rather than how have I got away oh, with okay. it? It's yeah. like, right. how am I going to do... Look, the, to be honest with you, like this isn't going to last forever. I'm not stupid. Why like, not? Well, because it doesn't. Like it, This is not how the trajectory of making artwork and people listening to it, it, it does not last forever. People will stop listening. I will fall out of favour. Like Whatever, it's going to happen. And at that point... I will still be making work, and I know that. Like, right. and when when I can't get, so you're published, just describing the size of the audience. Like, well, I think what I mean is that knowing that is pretty healthy. It means that you're not you're not afraid of the moment the tap on the shoulder comes because you know it's going to come. Like, I have a real passion to to teach one day. Like, I think that that do would you? be incredible. I'd, yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, and I think that all of this, what I'm talking about, the kind of anxieties of stage and stuff, you don't want to do that forever. You don't want to put yourself through that when when you don't feel strong enough to go through that. It should be a choice, not an obligation. Yeah, right? okay. Uh, so, yeah, all right. I get that. I, I don't know that I agree with you that, that it will come to an end, but I, I can see why it's liberating to believe that it will. That's what you're saying. I think it's realistic, you know? Like, yeah, it might be, but there are some people that go the distance. You know, for, there's Bowie and the, the, there are plenty of people who manage to have a lifelong career of, of weapons-grade creativity. That's true. But it's probably liberating to think that you won't be one of them, even if you end up being one of them. Because <laughs> the, that's the other thing. Like, part of you, part of every artist, and maybe, in fact, I know yourself, in fact, every single listener <laughs> likes to think to themselves that they, they have what it takes to go the distance. Yeah. Like, I'm somehow, I'm, I have it, I have it. Like, I sure. can, what I have to, but at, at the same time, like, you shouldn't, I, I believe that you shouldn't kind of count yourself among the greats, but you should be in communication with them and you should, you should see them as counsel, you know, like, yeah. I don't think that you should feel inferior yeah. to, to great works of art or great artists that you're on a level with them. They're here to teach you that they've got lessons for you to learn. And it's a give and a take. So you have, to, you have to feel part of a tradition, part yeah, of a yeah. process, part of a broader narrative, which brings us to the new book, which is, um, you've mentioned <laughs> it. Se seamless. <laughs> That's what I do, mate. Seriously. I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> it's transcendent. <laughs> Let's not get carried away. <laughs> Running upon the wires, you, you've yeah. given us some sort of clues as to what can be expected. It, are people going to be surprised? I mean, are, are people who are familiar with everybody down and let them eat chaos and some of your other work are they are they going to be surprised by this book? Is it is it is it what the critics would call a departure? 
Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. But I think I think all of the things that I've made have been. You do what you want to do from each other. Yeah, I mean. So where did this come from? So running upon the wires is a new collection of poems that charts the end of my marriage into heartbreak and despair, and then out into the kind of redemptive glow of new love, and then even further into domesticity and buying new sheets and um, mm. the idea being that rather than it just being like a, a kind of breakup album, I thought the, the more useful prospect to offer the world was to stay to stay with the speaker of these poems and see it through. And rather than finish there in the heartbreak, see it through, you know, make no bones about it. It's pretty, you know, it's depression and drunkenness and promiscuity and all and all the stages of heartbreak. Yeah. And, but then, to, and to see it through and to not stop there and to keep going with the poems... And so it's it's actually it's they're very short poems and they're quieter poems and so they're, they're moments, more intimate moments in your they're poems yeah they're it's a book of poems <laughs> was it always a book of poems uh yeah 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 I've been it's... I've been writing it so it's the last you know you, the way that it works when you're on the road and da 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 and you're making work and you write you're writing what you can in your time mm. in between whatever else is going on whatever else you're working on. And this is just what's been happening over the last few years. And so these are the poems that have been kind of coming out. And I spoke to my editor, Don Patterson, and I sent him a few poems like a, a couple of years ago. I said, this is what's going on. This is where I'm at. And he was like, well, okay, maybe it's a book of love poetry. And and maybe that's that's okay. Like, you know, I've always written these in all of my poetry collections that have yes. been the more tender poems and more intimate poems about relationships. But the conceit of actually sticking with the relationship poetry was like something pretty terrifying. Why? Because this will be the first time the perspective has been the first person. Yes. Um, Why do you do it to yourself? I think it's I think it's really useful and a really beautiful thing to offer the offer the world. Like so you're making the personal universal. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that with this, the eye in the poem is not it doesn't distance you. I feel like the eye becomes you for the readers i, f I think so yeah it also it's like i mean it's just a mad thing to say but like you know <laughs> i've got a deadline got a, got a, this is what i've been writing you finished this now. is what's happening so in september yeah yeah so it's like i was thinking well i could write a whole another book of poems that isn't about what's just been happening in my life but this is this is what i've got so and the poems would be there even if you weren't published You'd be writing the poems to deal with the, or, or is this a slight departure in the sense that this is part of a progression? Well, hopefully all the work is a progression. Like of hopefully. course. But, um, but professional progression then. In my, in terms of my professional progression, yeah. uh, I feel like the, the way that I work is in like chunks. So okay. I would count Wasted, which is a, my mm. first play, and Hopelessly Devoted and Brand New Ancients and Everybody Down and The Bricks That Built The Houses on one hand that's okay. that's like a chunk of work it all belongs together let the meet chaos is kind of in the middle it's right. that's that's a little stepping stone in, into a new chunk and then there are four or five things that that form a new constellation that's yes. the best way to think of them they're like constellations they have relationships to each other and you don't know what those relationships will be until until it's all finished and even then you don't really know but you know that they are yeah, well, they come, their gestation overlaps, their create their creation overlaps. So I'll be writing them all at the same time. I'll be touring one thing, editing yeah. another. Okay. So they have, they're part of each other's growing up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's interdependent. 
in a sense. Yeah. And they feed off each other and, and speak to each other. And so Running Upon the Wires is the first of a new... And do you know at this point what else is going to be in that constellation? Yeah. Are you comfortable talking about it or do you... There'll, there'll be a, there's a new album which it will follow in April, which right. is also a departure, you know, is a new... And uh, there's a play that I'm working on, which will be probably... Which hopefully will be ready in ne- next year, maybe. And that's also a departure and is part of this kind of new new set. And then if I ever finish this novel that I'm trying to smash out, then that will be a part of it as well. Spend the advance. I have to submit it before I get the advance. You? He's getting your agent. <laughs> Just going to get um, yeah. You don't have ambition in, in a conventional sense then? You're not, you don't, do you worry about money and stuff like that? I, I, what, in terms of will this book make money? No, I was thinking more about something Martin Amos is called Tramp Angst, which he has and Christopher Hitchens doesn't, and they used to discuss it. So they both were making – one of them believed it was still possible for him to end up sleeping on a park bench and the other one had done the sums and realised that he was never going to. It's emotional rather than financial or statistical. Right, okay. But when you were talking about discovering your tribe and being in squats and doing stuff that you needed to do, it struck me that you probably never really worried about financial security or, 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 or a mortgage-free existence. Well, the thing is, hmm. is that at the minute I don't have to, I don't have to worry because of all the work that I've been doing yeah. about the rent for you know a few, you know for a few months. You know you've done enough. This stuff, it's all it's it's all there. You're you're in this moment which you've been working towards your whole life of being able to support yourself comfortably with your work so yeah. that you can do your work yes. right. And then this is what I'm saying earlier about, you know, it's not going to last. But mm. like I talk about it with my partner and it's like, well, if we get to a point where I have to get a job or like a, like a, you know, not like a normal job, then that, that's what's going to happen. Like, and that it's not going to break my heart no. to get a job. Like, it's going to be obviously a bit of a shock to suddenly <laughs> not be on stage and to be like, you know, doing something else. But teaching would be great or like, caring somehow nursing like i could train that like there's loads of things that i would like there's a whole there's other lives so you're not you're would... not this is the final question you are not frightened of it all ending tomorrow or well, are you trying really hard to convince like, yourself that you're not frightened it would all? be heartbreaking <laughs> for like many reasons but it might be the best thing for the work if no one was listening to it you know because like i don't, I don't in fact I mean, that might be absolute nonsense but like <laughs> i i think where i'm at right now i'm in a beautiful relationship i'm very happy and i'm in love and it gives me a very strong feeling of security yes. about, like, no matter what else happens, actually. Like, I, this relationship that I'm in uh, is so beautiful uh, and it gives me so much courage in my work, in my calling, my purpose as an artist, that um, I believe <laughs> I believe in it, in, in love and in creativity, which is an act of love. And I, I kind of think... Because I'm in that because I'm in that moment, if I don't have to come and do interviews anymore, if I don't get to go and play gigs around different places, like You'd still be blessed. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean I, I hope, I hope, please, I'd still be able to write and I wouldn't get bitter and I you know, I wouldn't be one of them I could you know, I could have been a contender, you know. <laughs> I would really, really hope that it right. it can be twenty years down the line and I can still be feeling fresh with it. I think you're going to be all right. Let's see. I think you're going to be all right. Kate Tempest, thank you. Thanks, James O'Brien. Really lovely. (laughs) I think that the first 
five minutes of that interview were the closest I've come since we started doing Unfiltered to thinking that we weren't going to reach the end of the hour. It's no criticism of Kate. She just, she, she just sort of made me feel uncomfortable because I don't think she felt very comfortable. Hopefully, shortly after those five minutes expired and certainly long before the end of our hour together we both felt a lot more comfortable i know i did and 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 therefore managed to create something a bit special together if you did enjoy that you might want to check out lily allen's episode of unfiltered it's certainly uh very surprising in places here's a clip you know when i got pregnant with my first it was at the height of being chased by paparazzi and um, is that horrible yeah it's really intimidating and, and when you tell the story of how you achieved fame that was never part of your desire, though, because no, some, some people, Kardashians, for example, presumably dreamt of the day when their limousine would be chased down. Listen, if, if, I'd have, if I'd have known where it was that I was heading or if I, that had been my goal, I wouldn't have signed such a tiny deal with EMI. OK. No, I, I, I understand. <laughs> you know, if, if, if I'd, gonna, if if I'd, I'd have thought my... where I was going, where I ended up going, then sure. I would have asked for a lot more fucking money. So do go back and check that out, along with the rest of the Unfiltered back catalogue. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the series. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you know someone else who might like Unfiltered, then do them a massive favour and introduce them to it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.